Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I think likely of all the interviews I have done on this podcast, my hunch is that this one will likely be the most listened to. Because today, we're talking about one of the most nebulous and challenging concerns for first responders and frontline workers, sleep. And I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Landry, who has studied sleep for over 20 years. He has a background in academia, but currently works in private practice as a sleep coach, striving to make sleep science available and applicable to real life people who need it the most. He generally works with shift workers and older adults and has a program you'll hear about during the interview designed to support shift workers in getting the sleep they need. As always, I will post all of the details about where you can learn more about Glenn, his work, and his program in the show notes, so check it out. Or you can check him out at elitesleep.ca. If you're interested in his program, do listen to the end because... He's giving our listeners an exclusive deal to access his sleep program, and you can get the details in the show notes as well. With that, let's jump in. I'm so glad that you're here with me today, Glenn. It's such a pleasure to have you, and I'm so glad to have found someone with your expertise and background. Um, And I'm wondering if we can start off with maybe you just sharing a little bit about your background, about your story, and what led you to specializing in sleep. Sure. Thank, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to get the opportunity to, uh, you know, share the sleep science with everybody. Um, it's my life's work, as you know, and, mm-hmm. and so it's always a thrill to be able to do it. Um, I, I came to the field really, honestly, uh, as a teenager, I, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I had dutiful parents that did a really good job that wanted me to, you know, get the sleep that I needed. Um, say I was supposed to be in bed for 10, 1030 as a teen. And I, I would, I would go to bed, uh, but I just couldn't sleep. There was nothing I could do to fall asleep, or at least at that time, I, I didn't know uh, what I needed to do to be able to fall asleep. So I would routinely be up until three, four in the morning. And eventually I sort of learned to adapt. And I used that, you know, 11 at, at night until three in the morning to be a productive time where I would do homework and I would write my papers or study for exams. That's really, that was my most productive time. I knew it was strange, but I didn't know any other way. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got into university. um, And, you know, at that time I had the ability to control my class schedule a little bit better. And so I was able to 
you know, live the night owl lifestyle a little bit easier. But when it came to final exams and things like that, I had no control over my exam schedule. And so very often exams, final exams would be at 830 in the morning. And that is absolutely not the time that I would have been ready to perform. So life changing moment number one was really when I met Dr. Ralph Misselberger, took a course on circadian rhythms and sleep with him. And not long after joined his lab and learned all about, you know, what ended up becoming my life's work, circadian rhythms and sleep and really being able to take control of my circadian rhythms. And let's just introduce what that is for a second. Um, circadian rhythms are daily biological rhythms. You can think of it as we have daytime physiology, biology, and behavior, and we have nighttime physiology, biology, and behavior. And those two things need to be kept separate because they're incompatible processes. And so timing is really important. And telling your body, your brain and body, what time it is, is critical. It's important that we synchronize our circadian rhythms to the day. And so that day is happening during the day and night is happening during the night. And that's really what I was doing wrong as a teen is that I was turning my nights into days and my days into nights. And that's what was really driving my circadian dysregulation. And it's funny because my father knew it without actually being trained in the science. He, he used to tell me that I was turning my nights into days and days into nights. But at that time, I didn't really know any better. And so that was life changing moment number one, where I you know, learned from one of the world-renowned experts in circadian rhythms. And then life-changing moment number two was after I'd finished my undergraduate studies and my honors degree in Ralph's lab, I moved back home to live with my parents because my grandparents had moved in to live with them. My grandfather had Alzheimer's disease, and this was, well, to be honest with you, my grandmother had hidden it from the family. Uh, for probably close to a decade or more. And wow. she really had borne that burden, that caregiver burden. And it, it, to be perfectly honest, it's probably what, what led to her demise. And, you know, mm -hmm. the death certificate says congestive heart failure, but we know that caregiver burden played a huge role in that. And so when I moved back to live with my parents, I worked with my father to care for my grandfather. And one of the things that I learned is that sleep is dramatically changed in Alzheimer's disease. And it's, it's profound, the kind of change that not only the individual with Alzheimer's has in their sleep health, but also everyone in the household. And so to give you an example, with my grandfather, eventually my father and I had to take shifts each night, uh, alternating nights to stay in bed with grandpa, because if he... If he didn't have anybody in bed with him, he would get up and he would roam the house or leave. And so that's a, a, a real issue. It's a safety hazard for both him and others. Uh, so we, you know, coping mechanisms the way they are, we, we would just alternate nights. And so what would happen, and I am not exaggerating about this, grandpa would get up out of bed every hour on the hour, roughly, and he would come over. And as long as someone was in bed with him, he'd come over and he'd tuck us in, give us a kiss on the cheek, and he'd get back into bed. And so mm -hmm. that was our way of stopping him from roaming the house and disrupting everybody else's sleep. But of course, that's an effective sleep deprivator in the sense that every hour he's waking us up yeah. when we're in bed with him. So that went on for quite some time. 
eventually he did uh, get to the point where we couldn't care for him at home and he did end up having to go into long-term care. And so, of course, that was sad and tragic and difficult for the entire family. But it really changed things for me because I, I learned so much about, I had been studying sleep deprivation, I had been studying circadian rhythms, but I didn't have an aging perspective until I lived that that experience. And so that led to me you know, going on into PhD study on circadian rhythms and sleep, and then doing a postdoctoral fellowship at UBC to really look at cognitive aging and the impacts that normal age-related changes in sleep health have in terms of our overall brain and physical health. So that those two moments combined really led to me becoming who I am. That's a fantastic backstory in terms of our personal exposures and how they shape so much of what becomes passionate in our profession. And I always love when there's a way that we can find vocation in the work that we're doing. And so much of it is from that place of passionate connection to something that feels personal, even when it's professional. I couldn't agree more. My mom had always said that if if I found what I loved in life and I did that for my living, you know, I'd never have to work a day in my life. But the trick that she didn't really teach me is is that you have to find a way that people will pay you to do what you love to do. That that (laughs) That is is the the trick, trick, isn't it? (laughs) That is the trick, isn't it? Well, and I know that in the midst of um, your professional life, you've also developed this really amazing program designed specifically around shift work, which was part of why I was so excited to connect with you specifically was because you have this awareness of the population that this podcast serves in a way that I think a lot of others who might understand the sleep science may not specifically understand some of the challenges facing those who engage in shift work or who don't engage in shift work, but do engage in really high stress professions where a lot of other pieces related to sleep get quite disrupted. So we'll talk about the program and some of the other pieces connected to that, I'm sure, as we chat here. But what I wanted us to maybe start with were around the like common problems that are faced by those that you work with who are in these kinds of high stress jobs or shift work environments. What are some of the challenges with sleep that you see show up a lot in those spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. And so let before we delve into that, let's talk about the, the demographics that I work with. Mm-hmm. And they're older adults. And by older adults, I really mean 30 plus. So you can think of 30 to 50 is a young, older adult, 50 to 70 is a middle, older adult, and 70 plus are the real winners in life. And I talked a little bit about how there are these normal changes in, in sleep health that, that are a function of just normal aging. And we've known about them for decades. And, you know, to get to your point, what we see in that is progressive disruption in sleep in the sense that, you know, for most older adults, Falling asleep isn't typically the greatest issue. It's that they have difficulty sustaining sleep or being able to get back to sleep once they've woken up. So typically what you'll see is an individual is able to fall asleep and and sleep for maybe three or four hours, but then get up and just not be able to get back to sleep. And so what happens in that group is very often they're thinking, well, I can't fall back to sleep, so I must have had enough sleep. And so what you get is this this 
disruption in their sleep pattern where they're able to sustain about three hours to four hours at most. And then they'll be up for quite a long period of time, several hours before then being exhausted and needing a bit, a bit more sleep. And then they'll get back to sleep and they'll sleep for a few hours. And you know, the internet is one of those things where there's a ton of information and we really need to evaluate the information and the source. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is this, this notion that that biphasic sleep is, is healthy. And actually, as we get older, it's, it's, you know, the norm and we should be doing it. And that's actually patently false. We know the science is very clear on this. We need, you know, an eight hour sleep window to get at least seven, seven and a half hours of actual sleep. And if we're not getting that, if we're getting less than seven hours actual sleep each night, we're really just accelerating aging in terms of overall physical and mental health. So the older adult group is really a, a target that we work with. And of course, we work with shift workers, as you just brought up. And part of the reason we're working with those two groups is that the core issue that's the problem for both of those groups is circadian dysregulation. You can Hmm. think of it as turning your nights into days and your days into nights. Now, for shift workers, their shift pattern requires that. But in the case of older adults, it's just a function of people not being able to sustain sleep and thinking that they've had enough sleep and then they do things with their inability to sleep. That time, that period of time when they can't sleep, they just try to fill that with something productive, not realizing that that's having a profound impact on their ability to get sleep in the future. So it's the same issue for both groups. And that's really why we specialize in in working with them. And we also work with families with teens and children who have difficulty sleeping and teenagers, as I just mentioned, I'm, I have intimate knowledge of the, the, the <laughs> teen delayed sleep phase onset yes. disorder. And that's really something that we're not addressing in society at all. And mm. the final point that I would make is that with the advent of technology and the way that we're using technology in today's life, I would say that we're all shift workers. We, we alter our sleep schedule to meet the growing demands of work, family, and social life balance. And so we're constantly changing our sleep schedule to meet whatever the requirements are for that day or week. And that has an impact long term. And so really, we all need to understand circadian rhythms and we all need to understand the impact that they have on our sleep health. Um, And if no matter what we've chosen for ourselves, what domain we've chosen to be elite in, if we want to be truly our best selves, if we want to be elite at whatever that is, we need to focus first on becoming elite sleepers because sleep has an impact on every aspect of human health and performance. I 100,000% agree. And yet I know exactly what people are thinking right now, which is that it feels so out of our own control, right? Yes. So like I, and I mean, I've experienced aspects of that too. I've I've had sleep disturbance issues at different times in my life. And when you're in it, you feel like you're at the mercy of whatever is happening. And you feel so not in control of being able to change it because sleep is this thing you're either able to do or not able to do, it feels like. And it feels like you don't have a lot of control over making sleep happen. And I see your smile and I know you're going to tell me all about how we're going to do this. So I value that. 
in the midst of it, I think there's also some pieces that are, I want to make sure we cover kind of the challenges and naming some of those for those who are listening before we carry into how we're, how we're going to do this. Because I know that on top of some of the shift work challenges and the remaining asleep challenges, they also have some unique pieces kind of connected to PTSD. There's often issues with nightmares. I get a lot of clients who talk about panic waking where they just like sit bolt upright. They don't recall having a nightmare, but they feel like the house must be burning down around them because they wake up so abruptly. Um, I know some people really struggle with the falling asleep and like ruminating thinking or struggling to let go of what's happened during the day to be able to enter sleep. And so I just kind of want to like name that these are some of the common experiences that this population typically struggles with. And for sure, the ones I hear in my office really commonly. And I think you and I talked about this when we first chatted um, before recording was that sleep is also like the first thing to go, right? Like as soon as we've had a stressful day, we'll opt to stay scrolling social media another half an hour to like decompress instead of go to sleep. Right. And so there's also this, I've heard more and more about this idea of revenge bedtime procrastination. I don't know if this is a real thing, but I keep seeing things about it on the internet where we do this damage to ourselves in staying up scrolling or doing whatever the, you know, pieces are doodling on our phones to claim time for ourselves, to claim time is decompressing, but then sacrificing this thing that's also really valuable to us. Yes. Okay. So let's be very clear. It absolutely is a thing. It doesn't matter what we call it. It doesn't matter so much what we call it, but what matters is we're doing these things because either we're not psychologically ready to go to sleep yet. We, we haven't, you know, processed our day. We haven't washed the day away. There's so many things that are going on. We're ruminating on things. We're still trying to problem solve or by the time it comes to bedtime, that's the first chance we've had to, to actually have a chance to think about all the things that need to happen tomorrow or that week. There's so many reasons why we're not sleeping. And Mm -hmm. many of those things we think are beyond our control, but that's that's where we we really have to start there we have to start with identifying what is beyond our control and what is within our control and it turns out that there's a lot of things that are within our control that have a profound impact on our ability to get sleep so let's Mm. start with let's start with understanding that first our brain and our body must be ready for sleep at the time that we've scheduled the sleep Think of it as our brain has to anticipate our sleep window. And as I had said earlier, in today's society, we're all shift workers because we're constantly Mm. changing our sleep schedules. And you may think of it as, well, it's only an hour different, but that has a profound impact on our readiness for sleep. And so, you know, think of a typical schedule and I'm not just referring to shift workers here, but just talk about a nine to fiver that, you know, is you know, having a weekday schedule and then a weekend schedule where they actually try to, you know, live their lives and, you know, they're working for the weekend kind of thing. And so Mm. they don't want to go to sleep because that's finally their opportunity to do things, to enjoy their lives and stay up late with friends and do stuff like that. And so even that change, and, and let's be clear, the program is not about, you know, making sure there's no joy in life. That is not at all what we're doing. But 
you do have to schedule things. It's not just what you do that matters. It's when you do that those things that matters as much or more, right? We all know that we've got to eat right and exercise and we've got to get lots of sleep. We know these things, but what most people don't realize is it's not just what you do that matters. Mm -hmm. It's doing it at the right time, at a time when your brain and body are prepared so that you can make the most of that time. And so one of the very first things we do is work through each individual schedule. When we do one-on-one coaching with people, the first thing to do is to identify what would be a workable sleep schedule. And then Mm -hmm. the whole training program, really, you could boil it down to this, build the sleep window, Mm -hmm. protect that sleep window, and then sleep will fill it over time. And so Mm. now that sounds awfully simple and you could say, well, great. Thanks, Glenn. But (laughs) there's a lot that goes into protecting the sleep window. And of course, we don't have the time in today's podcast to go through all of those things, but it does give you a sense that there's a lot that goes into protecting a sleep window. What you do during the day matters, but Mm -hmm. also what you're doing before bedtime and throughout what should be that sleep window. And again, I said this earlier, but what you do when you can't sleep has a profound impact on your ability to get sleep at that time in the future. So all of these things matter. It's it's let me be clear too that this goes well beyond just simple sleep hygiene. In fact, I I think of sleep hygiene as a bit of a swear word, to be perfectly honest with you, because (laughs) sleep hygiene, you know, we can all access, you know, the sleep hygiene tips on the internet. But the truth is, is that most people have tried all of those things and they still can't sleep. So all that does is make people feel powerless and even more powerless than they did before they tried the sleep hygiene tips. So, you know, I, I really want people to go beyond sleep hygiene. And if we want to promote overall sleep health, we need to understand circadian regulation and what matters in terms of promoting stronger circadian regulation. Okay. So I have like... 10 different directions I want to go now because that was so good. The first one before I forget it that I guess I really want to touch on is you mentioned this piece of what we do when we're not sleeping, what we do when we've woken and we can't get back to sleep really has this long-term impact. So what should we be doing there? That's an awesome question. So let me give you an example. So Um, One of my favorite examples, when I was a postdoctoral fellow at UBC, I was working with um, the retired community at Tapestry. And so you can think of retired faculty. It's a very nice place, um, wonderful, actually, place where a lot of people aren't getting the sleep they need. Uh And one of the examples that that came up, I was I was saying, what do you do when you can't sleep? And, and this lady was telling me that she had actually developed this habit long ago before she ever moved into tapestry when she was living with her children. Mm-hmm. And so she would get up at 3.30 in the morning when she couldn't sleep anymore. And she'd get up and she would quietly bake and have muffins mm-hmm. and, and you know breakfast ready for her family. And it was her favorite time. Well, hmm. here's the thing. She really should be sleeping at that time. She needs to be avoiding light. She needs to be avoiding any kind of food whatsoever because food and eating food at night is not nighttime physiology, biology, or behavior. Mm. 
So really the, the key time cues to consider there, there's three. One is our light exposure profile. Day is signaled by long exposure to UV protected sunlight. That's the daylight is our signal that this is day. That makes perfect sense. The yeah. opposite of that would be night, the absence of light. And in particular, the absence of blue light. But in her mm -hmm. example, and I'm, let's be clear, she's not the only one doing this. There's maybe small differences in what the pattern is, but the overall thing is the same in the sense that they're getting light, they're mm -hmm. getting activity, and very often they're eating. So when we talk mm -hmm. about these three cues, light, physical activity profile, and meal timing, day is signaled by the abundance of food, the abundance of light, and the abundance of activity. At night, it's the reverse. Mm -hmm. You can think of it as fasting. The absence of food, the absence of light, and the absence of activity. So the key thing to think of for anybody that's trying to protect their sleep, they have to remember those cues and they have to understand that they must avoid light at night. They must avoid food at night and they've got to avoid activity. Those are the three hmm. key things to really focus on. And the truth is, and this is again, you know, sleep hygienists will say that, you know, your bedroom has really two purposes, right? It's for sleep and for sex. And if you're not doing either one of those, then you should get out of the bedroom. So if you haven't been able to sleep or fall asleep for 15 minutes or more, you should get out of the bedroom and just do something until you can actually feel sleepy again and then get back into bed. And the issue with that is that we're looking at insomnia, the inability to fall asleep or stay mm -hmm. asleep, but we're not addressing the underlying cause when circadian dysregulation is the issue. So right. we really need to understand what the problem is. And of course that takes training and it takes an interview and case history and working with an individual but that's what we do. Hmm. Identify what the core issue is, what's the driving factors, and then address them. And in the case where it's circadian dysregulation, and let's be clear for shift workers and older adults, a lot of the sleep disruption is a function of circadian dysregulation. And in okay. the case of older adults, We've known for decades that this is a normal course of aging. In fact, to be honest with you, the medical community probably hasn't done enough in this area, even today. It's been a long process, uh, but we now know that we need to protect sleep for older adults. But originally it was, well, we know that older adults sleep less. That's mainly because they need less sleep because they're not as active. They're not doing as much. Mm -hmm. They're not learning as much. And so they just don't need as much sleep. And that's absolutely false. They absolutely need the same amount of sleep. The issue is that they need to protect their sleep window. They need to do the things that we've you know, been talking about. And so what I would say is, yes, changes in sleep health are a normal course of aging, but they need not be inevitable. We just need to do much, much more to protect our sleep. And, and, you know, I'm happy to say that the sleep science has evolved to the point now where we already know enough to make a difference in, in people's lives. It's just that we haven't translated the science to the individual so that they can apply that science to their lived experience 
and be able to actually promote stronger sleep health for themselves. And that's education and training and what I call sleep coaching. Yeah. Well, and I know that that's the piece that you feel really passionate about is this idea of being kind of an interpreter for the scientific community that is doing all of their highfalutin sciencey stuff and allowing yourself to kind of be the bridge to those of us who are doing life and struggling to get what we need and to benefit from the science that has unfolded and that continues to unfold. And I so value that you've kind of positioned yourself there and and are allowing for these kinds of conversations that go from an academic place into the real life hands of people who really, really need it. I think that there's a couple of pieces. So in terms of the circadian rhythm piece, I guess what I wonder is... I'm going to, it's probably going to sound trite, but like, what are quick win ways that people can work at adjusting some of that, given that it feels so outside of their control so much of the time? So I love that you've mentioned these three pieces, light, activity, food. I guess one of the thoughts I have is like, what's the gap time? Like, is there research that tells us how long the transition needs to be between when we're in our daytime processes versus when we're easing into our nighttime processes. How much time should there be between when I am slowing down activity, slowing down eating, slowing down my exposure to light to when I want to actually be asleep? You have nailed. That's the most important question you can ask. And, you know, everybody wants the quick fix and you're not going to be surprised I know. when I answer <laughs> That there is no quick fix, right? And there isn't, uh, Mm -hmm. well, just do these three things and life will be wonderful for you for the rest of your Mm -hmm. life. Um, It doesn't work that way. But I will do this for you. I will say, again, um, that the the primary things that we need to do are first to build the sleep window, protect that sleep window so that sleep can fill it. Now, let me just expand on that for a bit. Mm -hmm. And the the piece to really understand is that we have this sleep accountant and now that I've created that sort of metaphor, if you will. Of this person. Yeah. <laughs> the, and, and for that metaphor, I think it works for, for what we're trying to achieve. No two days are okay. the same. And so some days, and this is absolutely true for shift workers, some days may be intensely physically demanding. And then other days might actually not be physically demanding, but are emotionally draining or just taxing. Um, Other days might be just faced with, you know, problem solving and difficult problems to solve. And then some days may be a ton of new learning. Each day that I've just described there requires a different staging or architecture of sleep. And one of the first things for people to understand is that it's not just how many hours you've spent in bed trying to sleep. In fact, it's not even how many minutes of sleep you got each night. It's the actual sleep architecture. So we have different stages of sleep that we cycle through in our sleep window. In the beginning of that sleep window, we get something called slow wave sleep. This is otherwise known as deep sleep. It's the sleep that washes the brain. And it's really important that we wash our brains in the front half of our sleep window and then use that well-washed brain in the back half of the sleep window to consolidate learning and memory, process trauma, all the things that we sort of touched briefly on. And so sleep architecture matters. Getting the right 
stage of sleep at the right time or in the right order is critical. And so we have this sleep accountant and its job is to balance the books each night, to go through and, and look at our previous sleep-wake history to determine what debt we have in terms of different stages, and then consider the day that we just lived through and be able to identify exactly what kind of sleep we need. Now, evolution has provided us with this, and we have the ability to do that. If we just give our sleep accountant a protected sleep window with which to balance the books. Now, the problem is that we're doing all of these things during the day that actually results in a handcuffed sleep accountant at night. So let me give you some mm. examples. And I realize this is a long answer to your question, but no, there isn't a simple one. <laughs> there isn't really a simple one. So let me give you an example of things that we do on a daily basis. So caffeine is one of the things that we, many of us, the vast majority of us start our day with a cup of coffee. Now that's fine. But if we're then trying to make it through and let's say that we've got this massive sleep debt that's accumulated. And so in the hours between 2 and 6 p.m. in the mid-afternoon, if you will, there's an mm -hmm. afternoon lull, that period of time where actually we're supposed to be taking a nap. And our circadian rhythms actually sort of turn off wake-promoting parts of the brain for that little lull during the afternoon to allow us to actually take a nap. So the European cultures that have siestas, they've got it right. Mm. They're working with their physiology. Here in North America, we don't do that so much. We're working against our physiology. So what do we do? Well, we're feeling this lull. We're not feeling good. We know that we're not thinking sharp. So we will reach for caffeine or nicotine or some stimulant to try to just push through this afternoon lull to get us into a period where we get our second wind, what we would call our second wind, mm -hmm. so that we can make it through the day. Well, that caffeine or that stimulant that we're using in the mid-afternoon is still in our system when we're actually wanting to get to sleep. And so then we're not able to get to fall asleep, not able to turn our brains off the way we want to. And then we're wondering why we can't. We're exhausted. And yet we wonder why we can't get the sleep that we want to get. Well, we've done things that have actually handcuffed the sleep accountant. Another example is alcohol. You know, now alcohol can actually help us fall asleep. But what it does after when we are processing that alcohol and we're going through withdrawal it actually disrupts slow wave sleep and REM sleep. So we end up not mm. getting the sleep that we want. Again, handcuffing the sleep accountant. So a big part of this is really learning. And again, can't get through all of it in a podcast today, mm -hmm. but really understanding that the course that we develop teaches people everything they need to know in terms of circadian rhythms and sleep science to apply that science given their lived experience, because we're all different, right. we're all individuals. And so it applies in some ways the same to all of us, but in other ways, there's like subtle differences. And so sure. that's what the course does is it gives us access to the science so that we can use that science to improve our sleep health rather than being, you know, at the mercy of all of the things that we didn't even know we were doing wrong uh, hmm. and having a profound impact. So that's the first part of the answer. And I know that was long-winded, but here's the second it's part. Good. Yeah. So remember, build a sleep window, 
protect the sleep window so your sleep accountant can pay the debts. That's the overall strategy. That's what we're trying to do. Now, in terms of the tactics, well, the first is very simply making sure that we have a routine sleep window. That's, and I mean, that is a piece of sleep hygiene, to be honest with you, but Mm -hmm. that's actually a piece of sleep hygiene that's really impactful because it's based on circadian regulation. Our brain and body must anticipate our protected sleep window. And if we are very routine about it, our brain and body can anticipate that and prepare for sleep in advance of it. And so Mm -hmm. then... When we give that window, the sleep accountant knew it was coming and the sleep accountant is ready to balance the books and it can make the most of that sleep window. So that's the first piece is a routine sleep window. Another piece is understanding that we're really at the mercy of our evolution. We evolved for a 16 hour waking day that's unimpaired with the exception of that afternoon lull that I talked about briefly. And then following that 16-hour waking day, we really require an eight-hour sleep window Hmm. during which we will get at least seven to seven and a half hours of actual sleep, properly staged sleep architecture. That's what we need. The other piece to that is understanding the impact that food has, and in particular, meal timing. We need to match the beginning of day signals from our meal schedule to our daylight. Hmm. So remember, day is signaled by lots of UV protected sunlight. And the beginning of day should be tagged with the first onset of that bright light and a meal. So think of that Hmm. as breaking the fast. That's what breakfast, you know, like that's where that came from. So we've got our breakfast. And then we've got our midday meal, and then the end of day is signaled by our final meal of the day. Now, if you recall, I said 16-hour waking day, 8-hour sleep. The reverse is true for our meal timing. We really should have an 8-hour meal window and then a 16-hour fast. And so to get to your question of, you know, when when should that happen, we want to make sure that we have at least – five clear hours from our final meal to the beginning of our sleep window. Now I realize nutritionists will say it doesn't take you five hours to digest food, but the knock on or downstream impacts of that meal will have an impact on our sleep health. And so we, for many of us, the final meal of the day is actually their biggest meal of the day. And that's a problem because our circadian rhythms synchronize to the two largest meals of the day in the 24-hour day. And so what can happen for a lot of us is that we're getting sunlight to start our day. But our beginning of day, in terms of the largest meals of the day, is actually butted right up against our bedtime. If you think Mm -hmm. for most of us, that big meal is is really just a couple hours before we go to bed. We come home, we've got a long uh, commute from yeah. work, and then we've got activities with the kids, and then we finally get to settle down. We have our big meal. And then a couple of hours later, because we know we need to get to bed to prepare for the next day, we got to go to bed just a couple of hours, maybe three at most, just three, three and a half hours after that big meal. And that is yeah. profoundly unhealthy. Hmm. You're also killing the nighttime snacker in me. (laughs) 
So let's talk about that. It's an awesome, awesome point. We, I very often get this with my coaching clients. They'll say, well, Glenn, I can't, I, I eat because I'm hungry before bed. And if I don't eat, I'm actually not going to be able to sleep. And that's a, a conversation we need to change. That's, that's, mm. it's, it's part of our culture now where we have this yeah. late meal. And the truth is, is that for many of us, we're misinterpreting a physiological signal. The signal that we understand to be hunger before bedtime is actually the sympathetic nervous system in overdrive saying, if you are going to make me stay up this long, you better feed me because I don't have the resources for this. And the truth is, is what it really means is we're tired. We should be going to sleep. That hunger signal is, uh, is our body saying it's time for bed. So mm-hmm. not eating before bed is the better approach. In fact, as I had said, you want your final meal to be at least four to hopefully five hours before your actual bedtime. And so, and for the parents out there that are, are listening to this, if your child is saying before they go to bed, if your child is saying, I'm hungry and your habit has been to feed them before bed, I want you to understand the unintended consequence of that. If you Mm -hmm. eat before bed, that means that there's going to be sugar in our blood system, which means that we have to drive insulin levels up to take the sugar out of our blood and get it into the cells that need that sugar. And so that insulin actually will suppress growth hormone and it'll suppress Mm -hmm. slow wave sleep. So remember I said that we need slow wave sleep at the front end of our sleep window? Well, the truth is, is if we're eating right before bed, we are inhibiting growth hormone, we are suppressing slow wave sleep, and we're having a profound impact as well in that more of that food that we eat goes to fat and blood sugar, Mm -hmm. which are both toxic. So I work with elite athletes as well, and very often... You know, when they first start working with me, their habit has been to go to the gym, have an intense workout, and then have a big bowl of protein or pasta or or carbs to fuel their bodies. And this is happening not long before bed. And so we really do. Again, it's not just what you do that matters, but when you do it. So it's critical to understand that you need to use the food you eat, meaning eat, then exercise, and then you know, go into fasting before bedtime. So it's really a lot of what we do is really about reprogramming and rescheduling, doing the same correct things, but doing them at the right times. I can really appreciate this idea of timing being the thing. It's the glue that holds it all together. I think I need to ask you this because otherwise people are going to kill me if I, if I have you here and I don't ask this really clearly. Because I think for shift workers, it's not just that they are on night shift, it's that their shift sets rotate, right? So they'll go from days to nights or nights to days. And so it's not even that they can try to reprogram the timing and create something stable. They lack control of that piece. So what are some of the pieces they can do to help support? I I appreciate that it probably won't ever be the best version of sleep for anyone to be in that cycle of never being able to keep it consistent. But 
what's the what's kind of the best they can hope to do given that that's the rotation that they're on well i have some really good news for you because uh, so we that so the shift worker group is a group that we've worked with for a long time now and so we have lots yeah. of data to show that it is absolutely possible to address a lot of these hazards that are associated with shift work so let, let's talk about those hazards quickly so we've known for decades that shift workers are a model of accelerated aging. Uh, they're mm-hmm. at greater risk of all of the diseases of aging. So you can think of that as increased risk of cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, obesity, cancer, dementia, all of them. And right. in fact, in 2010, the World Health Organization, after a thorough review of the science, determined that shift work that causes circadian dysregulation causes cancer. The mechanisms are now well understood. The mechanisms that drive this increased risk, they are downstream impacts of what we've been talking about here, circadian dysregulation. So let's be clear again, circadian dysregulation is just a fancy way of saying turning your nights into days and your days into nights repeatedly so that your, your brain and body are never able to synchronize because it's constantly changing. Now, hmm. here's, I can tell you that, and and I would encourage your, your audience, if they are shift workers, to check out our training program called Surviving Shift Work. It's available online. It's a 10 lesson series. It takes about six and a half hours to make it through all 10 lessons. Think of it as like, you know, on-demand learning, sort of like Netflix. And what this training program does, and I'm obviously not going to be able to cover it in the remaining time that we have, Mm -hmm. but I will introduce it in the same kind of way. What we're doing is we are taking the shift, the circadian shift out of shift work. So you're still working days and nights and rotating schedule. But what you're doing is you're learning all of the important strategies and tools and tips and, and tactics to actually anchor your circadian rhythms to the day while still working on this shift system. Okay. And so we go through, and again, it's it's complex. There's a lot of science that goes into it. This is not, you know, uh, a simple do these three down. things. <laughs> no, it, you can't. Um, you really need, again, because let's be clear about this. Let's say that you have a, a set of workers that are on, say, two days, two nights, and four off. Mm-hmm. You'd think that, you know, they're all on the same shift system, but they're not because they all have different lives outside of work and what they do on those four off days. So it's critical to understand that we must stop trying to look at this as we're all the same and we need to look at it as everybody has their own individual challenge, but the science applies to all of us in the same ways. So you have to apply that science to the individual's lived experience And that's what the training program does so that they can then use the science to help promote better sleep rather than being at the mercy of, you know, what they've been doing forever, thinking that everything was out of their control. So again, just to summarize, you want to take the circadian shift out of the shift work pattern and you want to anchor your circadian rhythms to the day. And as I say, surviving shift work, our training program teaches people, everything they need to know to be able to accomplish those objectives. And I, I can tell you that I've been working with a lot of shift workers 
And before they came to me, they were like, Glenn, there's nothing you can do for me because I'm a shift worker and it's the shift that's doing this. It's my shift system that's doing this to me. And then when they're finished, they're like, I just had the best sleep I've had in decades. And, you know, it is possible to do that. Now, Mm -hmm. each system is different. So how you go about it depends on your shift system. Sure. Well, and we will absolutely be linking to your program in the show notes. So we'll make sure that that's able to be found really easily for those who are interested in getting a little bit more information. I do want really quickly to circle back to one more question because it's another one that I'm very sure I have since clients who listen to the podcast. And I'm sure that if I don't ask it, they're going to hound me. Um, What are your suggestions around the specific pieces related to nightmare and panic waking? What do you do when that's the piece? Like I have so many clients because I specialize in trauma. I get almost entirely PTSD cases. And so I have so many clients where I can help support the processing of the pieces, but the, the feeling of powerlessness in that moment where they wake and where they're so fearful, their body is so dysregulated that falling back to sleep feels terrifying. Right. What do you do to work with that? What are your suggestions there? Yeah, that's, that's a, again, Lindsay, very important point. So let's take that one step further to the point where you have somebody that, uh, you know, is experiencing post-traumatic stress injury and they get to the point where they're absolutely terrified about the prospect of sleep. So I've worked with these individuals and so they don't want to go to sleep. They know they need sleep, but they don't want to go to sleep because there's, they just know they're going to have these recurring nightmares, right? Reliving the trauma that put them in the place that they are already in. So, so let's start with, you know, that worst case scenario and sort of work through what's going on. I'm happy to say that the science is evolving on this front and we're now beginning to have a much better understanding of what's going on with that. And so I have another metaphor for you. Hmm. And that metaphor is really just the the virus scan of a computer. Like, let's say that we've got this computer and each night it needs to run a virus scan so that when we get back to work in the morning to start our day, we've got a clean computer. And so in the same way, Remember, we talked about stages of sleep. And in fact, we did touch briefly on REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is a dream state of sleep. And it plays a huge role in consolidation of learning and memory, but also plays a role in processing the day and processing the trauma of that day. So think of this as a new learning event. And new learning is is tagged very often and more impactful when it's tagged with an emotion. So powerfully happy emotions will be memories that are strong. And think of it as, man, that was really good. Got to do that again. Well, the opposite can happen when something traumatic happens and we're like, oh, that was awful. I never want to go through that again. That's a learning event. But the thing is, is that if we then go through life and something happens that reminds us of that really traumatic event, then it can cause us to have all of the sympathetic nervous system overdrive that's associated with it, the fight or flight response. So even though it isn't the same thing, it's a trigger that makes us remember and, and, and takes us through all of that emotion and anxiousness and just the fight or flight. Physiological reaction. yeah. Yeah. The physiological reaction. Thank you. So, What REM does 
if everything's working well and we've got properly staged sleep architecture, then what happens is in the process of going through our REM sleep, it actually removes the negative emotion for that learning event. So think of it as disconnecting the tag, taking it away. So then we can learn from that event without actually having to go through all of the physiological response again. Now, in PTSI, when we have recurring nightmares, if we're not getting REM sleep properly staged, where the sleep accountant's able to process that trauma, if it gets paused in some way, or we're not getting the sleep we need, then it will do this thing where it loops in the same way that a virus scan that doesn't get to complete will continue trying to do the virus scan until it can gotcha. complete it. That, right. I, I mean, the metaphor isn't perfect, but that's kind of what we're looking at here, where it's critical that we address sleep health in PTSI so that the toolkit that we have as mental health practitioners to address depression, anxiety, and all of the factors that are associated with PTSI. If we address sleep at the same time that we're using this toolkit, we will have a more powerful toolkit. That's that's really the, the lesson to understand. I work with mental health practitioners and you know they they know that their clients aren't getting the maximum value of their toolkit because they just can't sleep. It's like, Glenn, we need you to help this person sleep. And we do do this. We need you to help this person sleep while we're going through therapy and, and treatment yeah. so that we work together. So that's really what, you know, CRS is all about working with mental health pr practitioners to help address circadian dysregulation and other sleep impacts on health. Yeah. and really be able to maximize the tools that we have at our disposal. That's awesome. I, I'm going to kind of ask it one more time because <laughs> I'm curious if there's like, mm, I guess I really want there to be really specific suggestions or um, I like, I, I know we don't have quick fixes for so many things, but I really wish we did. So I'm going to keep pushing until I find one. Um, the, the piece around nightmares and this idea that we want to try to protect the sleep time, the sleep window, when it's disrupted for us and we feel not in control of that disruption because it does show up in this physiological reaction that we feel really not in control of. And when now this environment that's meant to be my calm, safe sleep environment also feels kind of tainted by this experience, are there like typical practices that you encourage people to try in that moment where they've woken that help them settle back in? Or is it just a very personal figuring it out for each individual? It is a very personal thing that you have to figure out. I hate out that that's your answer. Yeah. And so, so let me be clear because I wish, I wish it weren't, but the truth is, and, and this is what we do when we work with our clients, we, we use subjective data as well mm -hmm. as objective data on their sleep health. Uh, we mm -hmm. use the Fitbit uh, to get some objective measurement of the sleep architecture. And then yeah. really there's a, in-depth case history that happens where we're looking at all of the factors. If you could tell me precisely why they're being kicked out of REM sleep, or if you could tell me precisely why they're unable to get deep sleep, then I'd be able to give you the quick fix. But until mm -hmm. we do the in-depth analysis, 
of the individual's sleep health account, if you will, yeah. and get an understanding of that sleep health status. I can't tell you what, what right. the intervention is. Like, I, I'm not kidding when I tell you that our intervention is individual. So what we yeah. do is we, we've streamlined it as much as we possibly can. We've got what used to be an 18 hour course and we've got it down to six and a half hours. And those six and a half hours are packed with the information we know we need to communicate in order to sustain improvement in sleep health over time. We can get someone to try to improve their sleep, but without those six and a half hours, it doesn't last. And so that's the first thing is that in those six and a half hours, they get trained up and think of it as learning a language. And that Mm. is the language we then use to do the higher level individual one-on-one coaching that then uses their Fitbit data and their objective sleep health status, if you will, to then develop a plan. And then throughout that, we're doing course corrections. We're assessing, seeing you know, where a person is, figuring out what we think they need to do, and then testing, seeing that, oh, wait, that didn't work. Well, it did sort of, but not as much as we would have thought, oh, wait a second, maybe there's this other piece that's missing. So, right. I mean, it honestly is uh, a stepwise intervention that requires uh, individual attention. Now, I'm talking about I'm talking about individuals with, say, shift work or PTSI or yeah. individuals that are on a re- return to work plan. Not everyone needs the in-depth individual um, sleep coaching. Most are able to benefit from just taking that course, surviving shift work. And remember, mm-hmm. we're all shift workers, so it applies to all of us. This is circadian yeah. rhythms and sleep science that applies to all of us. But taking that and then going from there, if they need the additional level of coaching, you know, we're available to people. Hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, and that's helpful to know. And I certainly will provide links in the show notes to both the program as well as to your overarching website where people can get in touch with you. Are there any other kind of final thoughts before we wrap up? I know our time is running short. So just kind of one last check-in. Is there anything else that you would kind of want people to know or feel is maybe lost in translation between academia and real life people that would be helpful to translate? There's two things. So the first thing is that I want to address the people in your audience that are thinking to themselves, Glenn, I know sleep's important, but I'm too busy. I will sleep when I'm dead. I want those individuals to understand that what you're doing when you are sleep depriving yourself in these young productive years that you're thinking of, well, number one, you're not as productive as you think you are because sleep has an impact on every aspect of human health and performance. So there's going to be deficits that you're unaware of. And the second thing I would say is that what you're doing is you're borrowing from your retirement. You're borrowing from your health in your retirement. So that when you're sleep depriving yourself right now, and let's be clear, the average individual based on epidemiological studies and Fitbit data, aggregate data over millions of users around the world, one of the things, a key trend that we see is that we're getting less and less sleep on a nightly basis than at any other time in our history. So most of us are getting somewhere in the neighborhood of six to six and a half hours of actual sleep each night. And so that means that most of us are accumulating a sleep debt on a nightly basis of at least 30 minutes. And so 
we are borrowing from our retirement. And my question for that audience is, you know, what are you working so hard for? Because you're not going to have those final years are going to be short and not really enjoyable. If you haven't been protecting your sleep, you're not going to have the health and wealth to actually enjoy that wealth. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is if you have been going through life and thinking, man, I know I need to sleep. I know I need to, but I can't. I promise you, you have it in you to be able to get the sleep you need. It's just that you haven't been doing things the way you need to do. So again, I'll summarize by saying, build a sleep window, protect the sleep window, let your sleep accountant fill that sleep window with the sleep you need. And if you don't think you can do it on your own, reach out. We're here to help. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Glenn, for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I always find it so enjoyable to connect with other people who feel passionate about what they're doing in ways that direct towards helping people who really need it. So thank you for transitioning from academia to be this bridge, because I think we need more of you in the world. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's it's a great pleasure. As you know, this is my life's work. And I think, you know, I'm passionate about it. And I think that does come across so people know it. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. I will say this too. Um, we will provide a 40% discount for, for your audience. So let's work out those details. And so you'll get a coupon code specific to you so that everybody can access this. Um, because our real objective is to get this science out to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Thank you to Glenn for sharing his time and his life's work with us today. I so value the experts who have carved out time to speak to these topics that are close to their hearts and helpful for those working on the front lines. Also, a big thank you to Glenn for his generosity in making his program available to us at a reduced cost. I hope those of you struggling with sleep will use this chance to take a look and invest in this for yourselves. If you want to check out Glenn's work and program, go to elitesleep.ca or find links to everything in our show notes, along with the coupon code to access his program at 40% off. As always, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. If you have feedback you would like me to share with my guests today, connect with me and I'll pass it along. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. Please keep sharing this resource with those you know and help us spread access to frontline wellness like wildfire. Until next time, stay safe.